Our Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the truths that we just were able to sing, that indeed we owe it all to Jesus, for us to be able to be seated at your table, not as second-class citizens, but as sons and daughters of the King, children of God. Oh, Father, there's nothing that we did to get us here. There's nothing that we could do. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. But we thank you that you and your kindness have given us new life. That you saved us even when we were enemies of you. And we ask now as we open your word that you would please teach us your spirit would illuminate the word for us that we might understand the scriptures better and we might live more truly to them. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, if you have spent any time in Christian circles, you no doubt have heard many statements regarding the kingdom. You've heard lots of things related to the kingdom And sometimes the statements that we use in reference to the kingdom can be ambiguous on one hand and or confusing on the other. For example, maybe you've heard some of these. We must be about the work of building the kingdom. Or we must give of our resources in order to expand the kingdom. Or maybe you've heard, in our ministry today, we get to participate with Christ in the work of restoring all things. Or simply the statement that ministry is kingdom work. Now, all such statements leave us with a very broad and generic idea of what the kingdom is. There isn't much specificity to what is meant by the kingdom or what our relationship to the kingdom is. At this point, we often just use kingdom as a synonym for Christian. Kingdom work, kingdom kids, kingdom ministry, kingdom blessings. We just use that in a very generic way. But I believe that the Bible would have us to be more precise in how we speak about the kingdom. And therefore, we should desire to be more biblical in our language. And as we come to the subject of the kingdom, it prompts us to ask questions Like, what is God doing today? And what has he called the church to do? What are God's expectations of what will take place in this age? Or what kind of results should we expect as the church as we fulfill our calling? These are important questions and they all relate to the nature and the timing of the kingdom. Now, let me just say at the outset here that there are good and godly Christians who hold different positions on these questions than I do, than we as a church do. And my goal here is not to divide, but simply is to teach the scriptures as we see them with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. I will contend this morning that the kingdom of God is not something that we usher in, that we build, or that we expand. The kingdom of God is is inherently connected to the presence of the king. And therefore, it will not come until Jesus returns to this earth. Until that time, we await our Savior and we make disciples of all the nations as Jesus commanded us to do. Now, to those who appreciate categories, we here teach that the Bible holds and teaches a premillennial view of history not a post-millennial or amillennial view of history. If those labels mean nothing to you, that's okay. You'll be able to follow along. I won't use them again. But I want us all to know this morning what the Bible has to say about the kingdom. We can throw around a lot of terminology, but we need to go to the scriptures. And that's what we seek to do each week, right, is to open the Bible and see what God says to us. And there's much there in the Bible about the kingdom, and we need to make sure that we're not mistaken. 
that we're not mistaken. In fact, it's easy to be mistaken about the kingdom. And we know this because the disciples themselves were mistaken about the kingdom. And we see that in our passage today. And so I encourage you to take out your personal copy of God's word and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. Again, we are systematically working our way through the book of Luke. And we are seeing all that the Lord has for us in this gospel. And today we find ourselves in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. In our last couple weeks, we've been tracking Jesus as he's getting closer to Jerusalem. He was going through the city of Jericho. There he healed a blind man, and he also redeemed a lost tax collector named Zacchaeus. In this passage, as we pick up the narrative, he continues on his journey. And so I invite you to follow along as I read verses 19, or chapter 19, verse 11 through 27. It says, And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You threw what I, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We, there's a lot here for us in this text, and we're going to spend time both this week and next studying this passage. Today we are going to limit our study to just a few verses and next we're going to cover the bulk of or the remaining uh, text that is before us. As I said, it's here that we see that the disciples are mistaken about the kingdom. They have mistaken assumptions about the kingdom. And so Jesus tells a parable in order to correct those assumptions. And we need to make sure that we likewise don't have wrong assumptions or ideas about the kingdom and that we understand what Jesus is teaching here in this parable and really in all the scriptures. And so this morning, we're going to ask and answer uh, three questions. The slide says two. Forgive me for that. It's three questions just to keep you on your toes. Uh, we're going to ask and answer three questions prompted by Luke 19.11 so that we can better understand God's plan and our role in it. And so let's begin by simply asking the question, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? There are 43 references to the kingdom in the book of Luke alone and countless more throughout the whole Bible. And this is why it is used so much in our lingo in church today. But what is the kingdom? Well, when it's used in the scriptures, the kingdom of God can refer to two different realities. The first is God's universal rule over all things. When the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it can speak about God's universal rule over all things. For example, Psalm 103 verse 19 
says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is a fact that is true at all times and in all places. There's never been a time that this has not been true. God is enthroned in the heavens and he rules over all for all of eternity. Psalm 105 verse 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This refers to God's reign as king over all creation for all of time. Again, there's never a time that God is not on the throne of, his universe, of the universe. He's always in control. And so therefore, this reality, when we talk about the kingdom of God, relates to his sovereignty. That God is the creator of all. He is the one who reigns and rules over all. As we say so often, this is the kingdom that we speak of. And therefore, it relates to his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. It relates to his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. He stands above all that he has created. And therefore, as Psalm 115, verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Our God is sovereign. He can do all that he pleases because he created it all. And this is a reality. This simple fact is one that sinful mankind naturally rejects, right? We don't want someone else to be in charge over us. We don't want someone else to set the agenda. We don't like anyone else telling us what to do. But the fact of the matter is, friends, that whether we like it or not, God is on his throne and he rules from the heavens. And nothing that we can do can change that. God reigns. He is king. Amen? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the great kings of ancient times, had to learn this the hard way. You remember that he was walking upon the walls of, of Babylon and he began to gloat in the great city that he had made. And at that moment, the Lord humbled him and made him like a beast. And he had to go out and live among the wild animals, eating grass like an ox, grew hair like feathers. He was utterly reduced. His reason left him. And after seven years, listen to what he said. He says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among, all, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that God is on his throne and that we must submit to him in that or he will find a way to humble us. And so when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God in some of these places, as I've shown, it's speaking about God's everlasting sovereignty over all things. But there's a second way that the kingdom of God is used in Scripture and so let's look at that second way. It is, refers to God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom on earth. When God created the world in Genesis chapter 1, as it's recorded there, God's intention was that the, this planet, the earth, would be the stage for him to rule over his creation through his mediators, his representatives, those who were made in his image, Adam and Eve. He set Adam and Eve to take dominion. You remember Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And to subdue the earth. And as they did, it, did that, they would be exercising God's rule over the earth. They would be ruling, subduing, having dominion over the earth, but all in the name of God. They would be his image bearers and be mediating his rule to the earth. There would be, in essence, a kingdom of sorts here upon the earth mediated through God's people. But as we know, his image bearers sinned and therefore disqualified themselves from fulfilling God's plans for humanity and for this planet. And therefore, ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been executing his plan to place a second Adam upon a throne on this earth who will succeed where the first Adam failed. Satan will not have the final say. He is the usurper. He sought in, came to, to attempt and deceive God's representatives. And he 
might be having some success, but he will not have the final say. God ultimately will win. God's chosen king will reign upon this earth. He will have dominion and subdue the earth with perfect righteousness and justice. Much of what the Bible says regarding the kingdom refers to this reality. It is sometimes called the mediatorial kingdom, referencing the mediators, that God's kingdom rule is mediated through a man. Adam plunged himself and all the rest of us that came from him, doomed and unable to fulfill that role. We are sinners. We are not able to rule in perfect righteousness. And so God had to send another one. And the Old Testament begins to reveal who this second Adam would be, who this perfect ruler who would defeat Satan would be. We learn right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that it would be from the seed of the woman as the promise was given right there in the garden right after mankind fell. We learn that this ruler would come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 6. We learn in Genesis 49, verse 10, that this ruler would come from the line of Judah within Israel. And then we, from 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with, Ab- with David, rather, and we hear that this ruler is going to come from David's line. And from there on, God's people began to look for the perfect son of David. The prophets then of Israel revealed much regarding the messianic kingdom. And yet most of us today, most of us Christians in the church, uh, are a little unfamiliar with the prophets. There's a lot of material there. It's from the major prophets all the way through the minor prophets, from Isaiah to Malachi. There's a lot of language, sometimes figurative, sometimes hard to understand. And, uh, and so we don't often spend as much time there as we should. But it's there in the prophets that we begin to get an idea of what the messianic kingdom would be like. So that when Jesus arrived on the scene and he began to proclaim that the kingdom was at hand, he didn't have to define what that kingdom was. The prophets had already done that. And so I want you to flip around your Bibles. You can tap to your Bibles however you get there. We're gonna, so I want to show you a few of these Old Testament passages for you to see with your own eyes. Turn first with Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll work through these in order so you'll only be turning to the right to make it a little easier. Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Stop right there. Here we get a description of this messianic figure, this ruler from David's line. And we see that the spirit is upon him. He's the spirit-anointed Messiah and that he is going to bring justice. Justice in such a way that he will punish the wicked. It says he will, with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. But he's also going to uh, bring righteousness and judge the poor, bring equity to the meek of the earth. He will do what is right. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. This Messiah, this ruler, this king will be righteous and bring righteousness to the earth. And note that the righteousness includes both uh, giving what is due to the righteous and giving what is due to the wicked. Flip to Isaiah 35. A few chapters to the right. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. We get another description of what will take place in 
these latter days in that future time from Isaiah's vantage point. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We see that there will be a transformation that takes place where these disabilities and diseases will be overturned. The curse will be undone. Turn to Isaiah 42, a few chapters later. Isaiah 42, this is the first of the servant songs that are given here in the book of Isaiah. It says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Here, the Messiah has a mission. God has placed his spirit upon him, and it's in whom God's soul delights. These uh, 42 verse 1 is pulled into the declarations that are made at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount Transfiguration showing that Jesus is indeed this one. He will bring justice. He will do what is needed to bring justice to the nations, and yet he is not just a bowl in a china shop. He also, a bruised reed he will not break. He knows the right course of action, but he will not grow faint or discouraged until he's established justice on the earth. Let's turn to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. This also is a servant, one of the servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 5, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me, this is the Messiah speaking, the servant speaking, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the, tri the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here the Messiah is one who is called to notice to bring Jacob back to the Lord. To, in other words, to help redeem Israel. Israel is in exile. Israel is lost, is strained from the Lord. The Messiah, one of the parts of the Messiah's mission is to bring Israel back to God. And he's also making a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. He is seeking to bring salvation to the end of the earth. So the mission of the Messiah has a focus upon Israel, but ultimately his mission is the end of, ends of the earth. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Next book over, Jeremiah 23. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he shall be called the Lord is our righteousness here we see that anytime that you find in the prophets the idea of the latter days or behold in those days it's looking to that future time and here he's saying that in that future time, he's going to raise up for David a righteous branch. This alludes back to what we saw in Isaiah chapter 11, that a shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. This shoot will be the Messiah, will be the, the righteous one, and he, it's a person, it's a man. He will reign as king, it says, verse 5, and he will deal wisely. Now this is not just a king in a spiritual sense, but this is the king that is 
planted with two feet firmly on the ground because he is going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. And it says that Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely in the land. They're going to be there, planted there in their land. They're going to finally be at rest as they have been saved by this messianic figure, by this son of David. This is what would be expected for the great son of David to come and to do for Israel in their land and deal with righteousness for them. Turn to Amos chapter 9, if you can find it. It's in the, buried in the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 9, the last chapter of the book of Amos. Here we see another description of what this messianic kingdom will be like, what this period will be when the king reigns in Israel. Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming. Ah, there's our indicator. We're talking about this future time. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There is a sweet promise here to the people of Israel. And we have to ask, how would the, the people that read this, how would Amos have understood this when it was first given they would have seen that there is a future time that's coming in which God is going to set them securely in their land and, and it, there's going to be such agricultural abundance that the plowman is going to overtake the reaper. They're still harvesting the, the crops when the, they're there sowing the next round and because there's so much to harvest. There's so much grapes that are harvested. That's why it speaks of sweet wine flowing from the hills. This is going to be unlike a, a, a period of agricultural abundance that we've never seen upon this earth. But there's a sweet promise that God is going to restore the fortunes of his people Israel. The very people that he exiled are the very people that he will bring back and plant them securely in their land. And finally, look to Micah chapter 4. A few more to the right. Micah chapter 4. A passage here that is also found verbatim in Isaiah chapter 2. Both prophets relaying this prophecy. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Micah writes this, It shall come to pass in the latter days, again there's that phrase, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples, that is nations, shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Friends, here is a glorious portrait of a future day in which Jerusalem will be the capital of the world and the peoples will go to Jerusalem seeking to learn and grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Come, let us go up to learn of the law of the Lord. It's centered in Jerusalem. And we also note from this passage that war will be no more. The nations will not be rising up against nations. The very weapons that will be there, it says the spears are, are beat into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. They're no longer needed because there is a king who is ruling righteously and justly in the land. And so in summary, what can we learn from these passages? And I dare I say many more. 
we see that Israel will return to a Davidic figure, to David, as it says. We know the, the, the first David died, served his generation, died and was buried, but there's a greater son of David that Israel will return to. We learn that there's healing of natural disease and disabilities in this kingdom. We learn that there's going to be a change of heart for Israel. The Messiah is going to change Israel's heart. We see there's an establishment of Israel in their land permanently and at peace. There's a defeat of Israel's enemies, judgment of the Gentile nations. There's worldwide domination. His kingdom will stretch from shore to shore. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. There will be great agricultural changes that will accompany his kingdom. And there will be an end of war. Friends, there are, as you can see here, both a mix of spiritual and physical elements in this promised kingdom. It is a kingdom that has physicality to it and yet is entered through a spiritual door. It is is only for those who have been spiritually renewed Israel needs to be renewed. The Gentiles need to be renewed to partake in this kingdom. And so there is great anticipation all the way through the Old Testament looking for this second Adam, for this one who will bring about these conditions, who will bring about this kingdom. But at the close of the Old Testament, no such second Adam had arisen. Israel was still waiting for its Messiah and they were waiting for him to establish his kingdom and bring all of these blessings and benefits as the prophets had predicted. And so in answer to what is the kingdom of God, in particular, what is the kingdom of God spoken of in our passage in Luke 19, it refers to God's reign on earth through the second Adam. It's God's reign on earth through the second Adam. And so let's flip back to Luke chapter 19 and ask our second question for the morning. And that is, why did the disciples suppose that the kingdom would appear immediately? Why is it that there's even this conundrum? Why is it that they even have this assumption upon their minds and hearts? Well, in order to answer this, we need to get into the life and teaching of Jesus Christ because this is where they got this expectation. Remember, the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three and a half years. And here on the cusp of walking into Jerusalem, they're supposing the kingdom would appear soon. Jesus preached much on the kingdom. But even before he started his teaching, there was indications of the kingdom that was coming as in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And this was even before Jesus was born. Let's flip back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the first couple chapters of Luke are filled with so much kingdom anticipation. It's all over the place. And kingdom anticipation, not in terms of, oh, there's a brand new kind of kingdom, but the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. There's a connection, there's a continuity to the kingdom that came, that was prophesied before. Luke chapter one, verse 30. Here the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary. And he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, verse 32, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He Gabriel is saying, you know that whole kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament? Jesus is that greater son of David who will sit upon that throne. He will be the king. He is the king. We don't have time this morning, but both the the songs of Mary and the songs of Zechariah, both uh, here in Luke chapter 1, both also reference the kingdom. They also reference the promises given to Abraham and that because God is faithful to Israel and his promises there, he is fulfilling those promises in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I got to show you Zechariah. Go to, go to Luke, Luke 1, uh, verse 68. 68. Near the end of the chapter... Look at what Zechariah says as he's prophesying in light of his son, John the Baptist, and Jesus' birth. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. 
And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Do you see how nationalistic Zechariah's hopes and prayers are here in this praise? He's recognizing that there were promises given to Israel and God is going to fulfill those to Israel, to national Israel. In the, through this horn of salvation who comes from the house of David. This is all in fulfillment of the mercy that he gave to Abraham, mercy of what he spoke to the holy prophets. In other words, Luke, the author who's pulling this together, along with Zechariah, who said these words, is seeing that Jesus' arrival to this earth is in fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies, that he will bring Israel back to himself, that he will save Israel from their enemies, bring uh, uh, smiting their enemies, and that he would ultimately change them so that they might serve the Lord without fear and in righteousness. In chapter 2, we, see, we meet two people who also have their hope set upon this future kingdom. We see Simeon who's waiting, verse 25, for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for when, when the Lord will bring peace and comfort to Israel. And then in verse 38, we meet Anna who is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And you, some would say, well, you shouldn't be waiting for the consolation of Israel and redemption of Jerusalem but this is exactly what the prophets had promised. And therefore, they are waiting for it. This is part of the Messiah's mission, is to redeem Jerusalem and to redeem Israel. And so we can see here, in the, just in the first few chapters of Luke, that the Old Testament promises haven't been changed, haven't been reinterpreted, haven't been spiritualized. They remain in effect. The only question is, how will they come about? Well, when Jesus, what is he going to do with these prophecies? Well, we know that when he began his ministry, what was the core part of his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Mark records it this way. He says in Mark 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Israel was called to believe because the king was there. The kingdom was at hand. The kingdom was near. Jesus says in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was sent to preach of the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the kingdom by announcing that he was the promised Old Testament Messiah. You'll remember in Luke chapter 4 that as he stood in the synagogue in Nazareth, he read Isaiah 61. He said, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. I am the one that this speaks of. I am the one you've been waiting for. In order for the kingdom to arrive, in order for these, all of these promises to be true, Israel had to repent of her sins and embrace Jesus as the son of man and the son of God. They could not enter the kingdom in their current spiritual state. And so Jesus is regularly through his ministry preaching to Israel that they would turn from their sin, that they would turn in discipleship to Jesus, renouncing everything and following him. He sends out, he goes out himself, he sends out his apostles, he sends out the 70 in Luke 8, 9, and 10, and they're preaching the kingdom of God. And it says when they, when they did that, the kingdom of God had come near. Now I haven't it hadn't arrived yet. All the promises and all the indicators of the kingdom in the Old Testament hadn't yet showed up, but it had come near in the person of Jesus Christ, his chosen representative, the king. And as we know, he performed many miracles. He performed these miracles to show that he indeed had the power of God. You'll remember the incident in Luke chapter 7 where John the Baptist is wondering, are you the one to come or should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus says, hold on a minute. And he goes over and he heals a bunch of people. He heals the lepers, he heals the blind, he heals the lame. And then he comes back to the disciples of John the Baptist and he says, go tell John that the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the blind see. Which was meant to be a reference to the Old Testament to say, you know all those conditions in the messianic kingdom? I'm bringing those about because I'm the man. 
Because Jesus was the king, he was the walking, living, breathing representative of the kingdom. In him, the kingdom had appeared in preview form. And this is why Jesus could say things like Luke eleven twenty, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, Luke 17, 21. He was the rightful king in their midst. However, as he travels through Israel, preaching, healing, saving sinners, all the realities of the Old Testament kingdom that we looked at haven't yet been exhibited because Israel continues to reject the gospel. They continue to not believe him. They've rejected him as Lord. They do not renounce everything and follow him. And this opposition is growing. This opposition is growing in such a way that as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that Israel is not going to embrace him as their king. Rather, they are going to reject him and nail him to a cross. But it says here, as we, look, as we are in Luke 19, verse 11, as they were going up to Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Why did they have believe that? Because they have seen the king do amazing things. They'd seen all these previews of the kingdom, and they're going, well, surely he's going to finish the job. He, he, he showed who he was. He, 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 can't he bring it the rest of the way? Kick out Rome? Show, defeat their enemies? They thought that Jesus would usher in the kingdom, but they were wrong. Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to usher in the kingdom. He was going to give his life as a ransom for many. He was going to not fulfill all the kingdom prophecies, but prophecies relating to the suffering servant because the disciples, along with the rest of current Judaism at that day, did not see did not anticipate that the Messiah would have to suffer, even though Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and others prophesied as much. But here's the point for us this morning, is that in Luke 1911, the disciples were wrong about the timing of the kingdom. It was not to appear immediately, but they were not wrong about the nature of the kingdom. It would come with all of those benefits, all those, the redemption of Israel, with the promised blessings, the agricultural abundance, all those things would happen. But they were simply wrong about the timing. And we know this because of the parable Jesus gives us in Luke 19, known as the parable of the nobleman, or the parable of the pounds, or the parable of the minas, depending on what translation, at what time uh, you've, uh, you've, you've seen it. But in this parable I want you to see just the first verse verse 12 of it how does Jesus respond to this expectation of a kingdom appearing immediately he says therefore verse 12 a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return Jesus makes it clear and we'll dive into this parable more in depth next week that this he sees himself as this nobleman a nobleman who goes away for a period of time it's not clear how long that time is from this parable. But it's a, he's going to then receive a kingdom and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to set up that kingdom and he's going to act and in kingly ways. Jesus, we know, went on to go to the cross, was buried, rose again, and he ascended to heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he's waiting for his second coming. He's waiting to return as the parable speaks of. At that time, the kingdom will be established. And the, the book of Luke continues consistent with this, this teaching that the kingdom of God is not being established in Jesus' day. In chapter 21, he describes some cataclysmic cosmic events and he says it's not until you see those events that the kingdom of God will draw near. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, I'm not going to partake of these elements again until I take them with you in the kingdom of God. And at that same meal, he said to them, in Luke 22, verses 28 to 29, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The disciples await a day when they will sit on their thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It did not happen at the Last Supper. It did not happen after that. It awaits a future day. And so I believe this section of scripture in Luke 19 is important for us to understand the timing of the kingdom and how we should understand all that the scriptures teach regarding the kingdom. 
But this leads us to the third and final question this morning. What does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us today? This means that we look forward to the kingdom as our inheritance. Friends, we currently have so many blessings in Christ, do we not? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul goes on to help recount those for us with his introductory statement in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through the new covenant by being united to Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen and amen. We have been richly blessed both now and for eternity. But friends, as believers of Christ, as those who've been united to Christ, we groan today. Things are not yet what they should be upon this earth. The Romans 8 talks about this whole earth groaning because things have not been renewed yet. In this age, until the King and our Savior returns, we suffer. We live in an age where righteousness uh, does not dwell and the knowledge of the Lord doesn't cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And the question is, what will it take for the earth to look like that? It's going to take the return of the King. At the present, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible makes that clear. One of the most quoted verses in all the New Testament from the Old Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1, that speaks about, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And this, by Jesus sitting down, this showed that he completed his work. He was victorious over sin. But his total work as the Messiah is not done yet. He's now waiting, like the nobleman in the parable, to return and set up his kingdom, during which he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10 makes this clear. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is waiting, just like that nobleman. The throne of God in heaven is not the same as the throne of David. We know this because of what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers... Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. There's a throne of the father in heaven. There's a throne of Jesus that he will occupy when he comes back upon this earth. Friends, we have a savior who's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he's interceding on our behalf. He has saved us completely and he will finish the job. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so, friends, we need to ask, how do we have the privilege of participating in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of the Holy One? It's only because it's God who saves to the uttermost. It's because we have gone to the Lord through Jesus Christ, the Son. And by trusting in his Son, therefore we are secured, we are guaranteed a salvation. A salvation that Peter says will be revealed in the last time. That will be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is when our salvation will be ultimately and finally complete. When we will match in totality a holiness just like the Lord. And so we draw near to God through Christ. We repent of our sins and believe in Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross. And so the question for you this morning, have you drawn near to God through Christ? Are you a citizen of this future kingdom? Have you made yourself ready? Have you recognized that even though Jesus is not here now, he will come again? And when he comes, he will redeem his people, but he will also punish his enemies. And yet he's being patient today. He's being patient to all that they might have the opportunity to hear the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that the king is returning and that we can experience life forevermore by being united to him. But it requires that we humble our hearts. It requires that we repent of our sin. It requires that we trust in him wholly and completely recognizing that if Jesus doesn't save us, we're doomed. So don't wait another day. Trust in Christ 
that you might have a place in that future kingdom, that you might know him, that you might know the salvation that he has wrought. I close this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The kingdom is an inheritance, but not everyone will inherit it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, we are all unworthy of the kingdom. All of us can be found under one of those designations. And so how are any of us redeemed? How do any of us able to inherit the kingdom? Because of the next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, we can inherit the kingdom of God because of the work of God in our lives, because of the work of Christ upon the cross, because of the Spirit washing us and sanctifying us, making us ready for that kingdom in a way that we could never do ourselves. And so we give all praise to him who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But what does Jesus want us to do while we wait? That's what we'll look at next week. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, indeed your word is clear that Jesus is the king. He came to present himself and yet it was rejected and was nailed to a cross. And in your divine sovereign plan, according to the foreknowledge of God, through that rejection, salvation was accomplished. Through that rejection, us, the Gentiles, were able to be welcomed in. And Father, we give you praise that you are able to orchestrate all such details. We thank you that you are then able to bring history to a close when you will send your son, send the king back to this earth to set up his kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to await that day with eagerness, with our eyes set upon Christ, and that we might remain faithful to him even though he is not here. Though we do not see him, Father, keep our faith strong in him and what you will accomplish through him in a, that final day. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, friends, I pray that you would go forth in peace and in the confidence of knowing the God who is sovereign in control of all things and who will ultimately bring his kingdom to pass upon this earth. Go in peace, you're dismissed.